folks. Welcome to the Modern Agile Show, episode 45. I am here with my friend Esther Derby. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. It's nice to be here. Now, uh, we go back a ways, back into the 90s, the 1990s. Yeah, it must be that or early 2000s. Yeah, um, that's right. In Somewhere in there. Um, yeah. we, went, we met at a Jerry Weinberg experiential design workshop. Yep. We were all honing our ability to design experiential exercises for deep learning. That was great. Yeah, well, it was a fun class. Well, it really was. Uh, and uh, since then, uh, you have gone on to write a whole bunch of different books and help a lot of companies around the, the globe. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole lot to talk about here. So we, we ought to get started. I will want to mention some of your books. Here's oh, um, Behind Closed Doors that you co-authored with uh, Johanna Rothman. Yep, we both had the experience of being developers on Wednesday and managers on Thursday, so we, we wrote a little book for people who are having that experience. And then there's the Agile Retrospectives book with mm -hmm. Diana Larson. Mm -hmm. So that's a, another wonderful contribution to the art of learning. Yeah, um, it's all, that's all about learning. And then your latest book, which I'm super excited about, is this one here. Seven Rules for Positive, Productive Change. And it's filled with uh, the subtitle being Micro Shifts, Macro Results. So that, is, uh, that just came out, right? It came out in August yeah. of, of last year. So it came out last end of last summer. Yes. And... Um, it's a great book. I really love this well, book. I thanks. think it's very important, especially given that change is so difficult. Well, some change is difficult. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it might be interesting to discuss. Now, a lot of the people watching the show or listening to the show are involved in Agile or Lean mm -hmm. transformations or some mm -hmm. form of organizational transformation. And, um, I think this book really speaks to that, um, to both the positive, productive changes that can be made, but yeah. it, all, it also brings up stories of um, ineffective change or, or changes that just don't work too well. Yeah, well, I see that, I see that a lot, and I suspect you do too, mm -hmm. that um, well-intentioned management in a company decides we have to, we have to go agile or we have to, you know, become lean or something in order to solve some real organizational problems. Yes. And they send everybody to training and they hire coaches. They may hire, you know, a really excellent firm and still they often don't see the results they'd hoped for. Yeah. And what, why is that? What, what are they doing wrong? Where this happens a lot because yes, you're yeah. right. We see it too. We see it yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Well, and, and you may succeed at a team level, right, or with several teams, but the organizational patterns still persist. Mm -hmm. And my, my observation is that what, what, what often happens is that people um, find a package solution and they overlay that onto their existing structures, policies, ways of thinking, ways of rewarding, ways of managing, 
and they, they get a very superficial sort of change. Yes. Right. They may, they may change the language they use, the, the, you know, the story in the book, they went from, you know, having documents to work products, you know, or they go from having project managers to scrum masters, but the patterns of interaction, the patterns of behavior, the patterns of results stay the same. Right. And that's because they never, they, they didn't, they didn't address these underlying structures. Right, they overlaid something on top of it without addressing the factors that were actually contributing to the patterns that they were seeing. Yeah. Right. Now, um, I, I was thinking what you just said made me think of Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm. And in that yeah. book, he says that a lot of the early to late majority prefer evolution, not revolution. And so they, they're mm -hmm. happy to basically do exactly what you said, layer in the new stuff on top of the old stuff. Because they, they don't want a revolution to the old ways. They just want to add in some things to make things better. Well, and that's interesting because that might make micro shifts attractive to them. Ah. Right? Because big change freaks people out. Yes. I mean, often. Not everybody, obviously. I mean, we mm -hmm. all change, choose big changes in our lives at various times. But... Mm -hmm. um, but in many, many organizations, that sort of huge revolutionary change just freaks people out. I yeah. mean, people feel a sense of loss. They feel a sense of loss of control. They feel like, you know, I've spent my years build, building up my status and my, you know, my little turf here, and now it's gone. And, and changing the underlying factors, small little incremental changes, kind of nudging in a better direction, yeah. It doesn't freak people out, right? Because right. it doesn't feel like an existential threat. Right. But I it can actually change things dramatically over time. That's, that's the great part. If that, if that macro result happens, then, yeah. uh, you know, one, so then here's a quick question for you. Um, what are you, what is it, what is the change you can talk about, you know, um, that you were part of that led to the kind of macro results that, that came through the micro changes that, that, you know, a journey like that. Yeah. Well, there was, there, I worked with a company where it, in, to some extent, my, the major change I inserted was asking different questions. Ah. So, so the, when I got there, um, the first, the first um, visit I had, there was a, one of their senior vice presidents was saying, why aren't these teams accountable? And he would, he had this kind of hand motion. And so I started paying attention to that. And I noticed that that was pervasive, that, that anytime something went wrong, it was, why aren't the teams accountable? And then people would say, well, when I take on a commitment, I always follow through. Right. So, yeah. so it's, there was no problem solving right? The minute that happened, people stopped solving problems and it was just so quiet. So, so I started asking very different questions like, hmm, I wonder who's there when that commitment was made. And people would say, well, of course the team made the commitment. And they would say, well, let's, let's go ask them. And then it would turn out that the team wasn't actually there, that the commitment was made on, uh, on their behalf by someone else. And so I just kept asking different questions. Um, which led people to look at different data and understand the dynamics in a different way. I see. And, and, you know, that led to other little changes that led to a differences in how they were accounting for, 
capacity. And they got a lot more realistic about what can a team actually accomplish, which changed the way they were interacting with their customers and making promises to their customers. So it, it had a, a broad systemic effect. I see. So over just, time. And they were, so they were open-minded also to, to make changes that they, they were humble enough to realize that they do, did need to change. You know, in, in some ways the changes were so, um, so small that it didn't feel like, like, oh my God, we're changing everything. And did this go, did this go over a period of, of, you know, weeks, months, years? No, it, it, it took, um, you know, it, it took a couple of years for the changes to the way the customer relationships were being handled. So it took, it took some time for that to seep through. And, and people often, when I talk about micro shifts, they feel like, oh, well, that will take forever. If we're just doing all these small little experiments and it's just, you know, nudging us forward, it's going to take forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does. But if you think about um, all of the agile transformations we've both seen where they spend, you know, a year training everybody and learning ceremonies and renaming all the roles and stuff and have the same results and then they bring in another company that says they're going to do a better job you know the the actual elapsed time is not different right right i right. see right and, so yeah interesting no that's that's cool and and it sounds like you're talking about a specific team or department like was that a was that a specific area of a company? That was um that was actually a division mm. within a company. So yeah, you know, there were, you know, I had most visibility into a group of about a thousand. Okay, so that's a big that's that's a lot of people, yeah. but but micro shifts to how they how they worked. Who the so there was there was another interesting micro shift. I was I was there with some. Um, there were some other people who we were all working together and sharing results and coordinating. Um, but there's another really interesting little micro shift story is um, one of my colleagues, um, Don Gray, I think you might know Don too. Sure. Um, he, um, he put up a diagram on, on one of the wall. He had a, he had a, an office that had a big whiteboard. And so he just drew a picture of what it, what the, how the teams were organized you know, when people would come in and you talk to them, you say, so I think this team is working on this and this team is working on this. And so he eventually had this big picture and then he, um, he um, started drawing circles around the teams that were committed to delivering together. So, except they weren't circles. I mean, sometimes they would be like this big horseshoe shape and sometimes they'd be like, you know, this team. So these, you know, amoeba shapes that would include teams that were spread across four or five different geographical locations and three or four different time zones, sometimes with only you know, a half an hour of overlap. And people would come in and look at, look at this picture and say, huh, what's that? And he'd start talking through it. And over time, the way the teams were organized shifted they'd say, oh, well, that makes no sense to have these two teams that are separated by 14 hours working on the same thing. Let's move that work over here. Yeah. So, and it wasn't a big, a big, um, 
you know, like, oh, you're doing this in a stupid way or, or, um, you know, you have to, you have to upset everything here and reorganize everything in a day. It's just like, oh, well, this is what it looks like. You know, here's the micro shift. Here's the picture that gives people a different way to visualize what's going on and what's contributing to the patterns. And then they started shifting it themselves without a bunch of fanfare. And by oh. the end, you know, the, the team, you know, there was still a lot of teams spread over geography and time zones, but it was, you know, they decided we're going to constrain this no more than two time zones. Right. Wonderful. So it's, it's very different yeah. from telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. It's instead exposing the, the system to them. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's a beautiful way to put it. It's helping the system see the system mm. and then they can make changes. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah. without a whole bunch of disruption. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. It, well, the sad ending of that is that um, the division was sold. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it didn't change what the individuals had learned. Right. Right. So they can carry some of that knowledge with them wherever they go. But, Ultimately, I think that's what we're doing. We're helping yeah. individuals and yeah. uh, hopefully they can help their divisions and companies. But at the end of the day, it is down to the individuals and their, their skills. Well, and their ability to see the systems and be aware of what is contributing to the patterns. Yeah. The patterns that they're observing. And so, so yeah. No, go ahead. The macro result what was that you know observed in a business that functioned better was it you know higher profitability well, it, was a, it was observed in an improved um trust between the customer mm-hmm. and the um you know the, the organization was developing this product yeah um it was um evident in more concerted management attention to some some technical problems yeah um it was evident in the way they went about their planning mm-hmm. yeah so so much smoother more graceful relationship with the customer and, mm-hmm. and flow of value mm-hmm. yeah and you know that's that's ultimately what i think companies are after yeah it's very significant so you know i know we didn't want to talk about all of the the laws of change in your book um but are there any that would apply to this story Um, well, so I think about these as heuristics, like okay. the guides to problem solving. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Right. I called them laws and I, that's yeah. probably not that's okay. correct. Yeah. That's okay. I'm just, um, um, you, you call them rules, but you, you couldn't, you couldn't sell a book called seven heuristics. For right. <laughs> not going to happen. So, so laws are rules, but really they're, they're rules of thumbs they're guides um, yeah. for problem solving. Um, yeah. So, so we used experiments a lot. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, we used experiments a lot. We, um, we did as a kind of a coaching group or consulting group, we did a lot of thinking about what are the underlying factors that contribute to these things and how can we make those visible to people, right. which would fall under assess what is. Yep. Rule number um, three. Yep. We, we tried to um, build on what was working. Mm-hmm. which would come under honor the past present and people mm-hmm. yes. You know, we, yes we didn't mess with that mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i think a lot of them showed up there i mean the first one strive for congruence yes 
What an because important... in some ways, the asking the question about well, was that was that team present when this commitment was made? That was an effort to move people out of a blaming stance of saying, you know, what, what I what what the organization needs and what I need is what matters. It doesn't matter what the team. We're going to blame people. Yeah. So that was striving for congruence, moving people back into a, a stance where they can look at, you know, what's going on for them. You know, I, my, my career's on the line here. Um, what the organization needs, we need, to, we, we need to be in this product space. And what had been left out previously, what's going on for the teams. Right, right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, a lot of those heuristics were at play in any given at any given time. Yeah, and, and this strive for congruence is so powerful. I, I, would you mind if I read just the description of it real quick? Sure. Okay, this is from, uh, this is rule number one. Um, the summary is congruence is the foundation of integrity and open communication in times of change. And then you write, congruence involves balancing the concerns of people initiating a change with those asked to change as well as considering the context that requires the change. It is essential for understanding other people's context and concerns from an empathetic point of view. Yeah. And then when, the, when those factors are in balance, it's easier for people to discuss what is happening on both the inside and the outside. Congruence enables communication, problem solving, and creativity. When people are operating in this balance, they can assess their best thinking, problem solving, and creativity. Congruence is the foundation for change by attraction, and it, ref and it contributes to referent power. So that's a nice segue into two topics I wanted to ask you about. Sure. Uh, change by attraction, which I love, uh, and different forms of power, including this referent power. So what should we talk about first? What, what do you think? What, what? Let's talk about change by attraction because you were, t you were telling me about an example of how you were doing change by attraction. So let's yeah, talk about that. Sure. Um, okay, so my understanding of change by attraction, you know, that's, that's basically, uh, I, you know, it's, it's where people are attracted to the change. They want, mm -hmm. to, they want to try this change. They're, they're inspired by it. They're enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's, being forced on them. It's the opposite. It's that they, they want to give it a shot. Um, and that, I think you're saying that's one of the best kinds of, of changes that exists. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it, 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 it works on a couple of different levels, right? You have people who actually want to make it work, which if you have people who don't want to make it work, chances are it's not going to work. Right. right. So you get people who actually want to try it and make a genuine effort. Yeah. So you're going to get a lot of information about what the organization is up against, right? By doing that, that little um, contained experiment. Mm -hmm. And you also remove the, um, the rationale of, Oh, we could never do that here. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause you have done it here. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at what were the conditions that made it possible to do it here. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I guess the kind of, we do all kinds of, in our consulting practice, I mean, we do kinds of different kinds of change, but the one that, that I've seen have the biggest impact is where we, um, we actually go all in mm. on a bunch of things at once. It's, that is to say, you know, the right people on the bus, the right team. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to have a cross-functional team. 
Um, we are going to, you know, perhaps if it's software, we're going to do a whole bunch of technical practices together at the same time. We are going to do a bunch of planning practices as well. So it's just, so just you know, all in on lean and agile practices and principles. However, it's opt-in. It's not thou shalt do this. It's, hey, you want to give this a shot? We're going to have this this program. Uh, this, this, this is an important piece of a product that we're building, mm -hmm. but it's an experiment. And if you want to join, you know, you're, you're welcome yeah. to, to participate for several months and see if you like it. Yeah. So it's also not the whole company at once. It sounds right. like. That's right. Right. So, so it's not, there, there, there's no rolling it out. There's no, um, you know, massive training. There's training, but it's targeted and it's followed up by coaching and mentoring. That's right. And modeling. That's right. And, and so within this, within the scope of the whole organization, that's still pretty small, but yeah. it's a great way to learn. Yes. And, and then what, what happens in that situation, in my experience, goes one of two ways. Either people start saying, oh, it, it looks like they're having fun over there. We want some of that. And that's the attraction, right? That's the change of attraction. Mm -hmm. that, then people are attracted to the second wave is attracted. Yes. Um, the, uh, the other thing I have seen happen occasionally, and this doesn't happen real often, but mm -hmm. you need to be prepared for this, is that um, sometimes people will say, wait, what you're doing over there makes us look bad. Yes. It makes us look like we're, you know, we're stupid and we should have been able to do that all along. So we have to squash it. That's right. I think that's not as common, at least in my experience. What have you seen? I've seen that happen quite a bit. Uh, you know, oh, yeah? we, we started calling it the organizational antibodies and they, sure. they, they come out in force and uh, it got to the point where we'd be like, let's, let's address the organizational antibodies while we're doing this sure. effort so that they sure. don't get to build in strength. Uh, or these days we could say they don't get to like mutate. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, but that, that goes back to, um, it goes back to congruence and it goes back to honoring the past, the present, and the people, right. because people are experiencing some sort of loss. Yes. Right. It's their, a loss of their sense of competence. It's like, yeah. you know, I thought I was, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing and it turns out like, no, what I was doing wasn't great, but people don't like to be made to look wrong. Yeah. Right. So that's in a way how you address the antibodies. It's like, who's, who stands to lose here? Yeah. Who's yeah. going to lose face? Who's going to lose competence? Who's going to lose, you know, status? Yeah. Who's going to lose all those things? Because you have to address that. It's very, that means reasonable for people to protect that kind of stuff. And that's tricky because I think a lot of people go into it just saying, hey, I'm, you know, we're, we're all about making improvements. Let's make improvements. I mean, it's not good today. Let's make it better. And, and yet we forget all these feelings and all these. Yeah. You, last time we yeah. talked, it was you taught, you used a term that I really love. I think it was down status. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this happens a lot in with well-meaning, and I'm sure I've done it at various points in my life, you know, I mean. Because, I'm sure I have too. <laughs> because, because we're brought up to show how smart we are, right? Um, so someone well-intentioned comes in and starts trying to show people how to do things, try to be their teacher, right? And teacher is a high-status role, right? And if someone hasn't given you that status or invited you into that status, mm. and you try to teach them something it down them right right 
right? And when people are downstatused, they feel defended. Mm -hmm. And that's not a good place to try to make a change. No, no. People, people are, are in a protective mode. And that's, it's not because they're stupid, bad, or wrong. It's that's human, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's another thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is that the very, the traditional ways we go about change. You know, if you think back to, you know, the big change methodologies where you make a plan and you have a you know, guiding coalition and all this stuff. Um, they rely heavily on logic and reason. Yeah. Which doesn't leave any room for this, the emotional and psychological aspects of change. Right. Right. So when people can't talk about it, it doesn't go away. Mm. When people try to talk people out of it, it actually tends to ratchet up. Yeah. So how do you help people to not get into a defensive mode when you're starting to make a change with, let's say, a, a division or a, a department or a team? They're, in, they're somewhere else and they're hearing about this. What do you do? What do you do to tame those you know, feelings of, wow, they're, gonna make me, they're making me look bad because they're having such success? Well, I try to, I try to be empathetic. And I try to, uh, you know, I try to um, talk about what the conditions were that made it possible. Right. So that people can, can begin to say, oh, it's not because we're stupid. It's because the conditions aren't conducive for this. Right. right. It goes back to what are the underlying factors. Mm -hmm. So here are the things that made it possible. Here's the environment that we had that made it possible for this to emerge. Right. Let's see if we can make that environment here. Or I build on what's working, right? Because mm -hmm. there's always something that's working, yeah. always. Yeah, and, and, and as you say, acknowledging that is so important. I mean, you know, yeah. we, we, we go back to the, you know, 80s and 90s and systems were built and shipped before, you know, we were considering this agile. Um, it, it's, it happened, right? I used, I used to tell people all the time, like, yeah, we, we love lean, we love, agile principles and practices however it doesn't mean you can't write and produce a system the old-fashioned way it's just you know let's honor that well and there are certain types of systems where you can know all the requirements up front. yes yes absolutely you know, and waterfall works yeah I, if, if you can spend you know i worked i worked on a project um i actually came into it a year into the project, they hadn't done a stitch of development work, mm -hmm. but they had spent a year understanding what was what was needed. Right. This was an accounting thing, right? But they mm -hmm. spent a year. Right. So then they, you know, then they could just write it. Right. So so it's not that it's impossible, stupid, bad, or wrong. It's most of the problems that we work on. And most of the products that we work on in our in the current world aren't like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you can get to the result quickly, easily, and gracefully, I'm like, who cares how you did it? Like, you know, I mean, it's it, it it's yeah. I think we can get blinders on. Like, you know, I call them agile sure. blinders because uh, I remember uh, we we needed um, an API. We needed to be able to to pull data from this developer tool. And um, they had never exposed that data before. You know, it's like and, and when people are refactoring or running tests or mm -hmm. things like that, we needed to know when that was happening and we need to know specific data about those events. 
And they said, okay, great, write us a spec. I was like, a spec? Wow, I haven't done that in a really long time. Are you, uh, you don't want to like just do a little bit of work and get it started? And they're like, nope, you know, that they, they own the tools. It's their, you know, choice. There was no, they did it as a, they're their partner of ours, JetBrains. And um, I was like, okay, I'll write the spec. You know, and it felt really old fashioned, but I spec'd out every last bit of data we wanted, sent mm -hmm. it to them. And then they, you know, a little while later, they sent back the API and like, here you go. Um, and it, you know, it, it, it was fine. It was, it was actually, it was not really um, conducive to agile because it was discrete amount of data that we needed. Very, very specific. It was like, this is what we need. Please provide it. And they did, you know? So I realized, wow, I mean, I, I wanted to approach it in an agile way and it didn't really fit. Well, it goes back to context, right? Yeah. It's context is everything. <laughs> yep. So, um, so this, this referent power, ah, like, and yes. forms of forms of power, like what, going back to that story you were telling, what kind of power was at play and how did it change? Like, I, I, first of all, I think we should define what referent power means. Sure. So I think of referent power as power that is based on relationships of respect. So people respect that you have good intentions. They know that you have a history of making you know, decisions in the past that considered um, weighed points of view in a reasonable way. Um, and that you, you, know, you have relationships with people. And yeah. that, that um, gives you a certain amount of trust and a certain right. amount of, um, okay, well, you know, we'll try it and we'll work with you, right? So I, I find this is a really powerful form of power and is, it is what most coaches and consultants work from. Yes. Right. It's, it's all about referent power. It's all about creating some kind of connection, creating some kind of rapport, um, under, showing, demonstrating that you understand the problem that people are facing. You understand their challenges. You're not just there to judge them. Right. And then, you know, you get, you get some leeway. You know, people are willing to try mm. because you've listened to them. They're willing to listen to you. Right. Now, in most organizations, what people are familiar with is positional power, which is, you know, I'm, I'm a vice president. You know, I, what I say goes. Or um, reward power, which is, you know, if you, if you achieve these benchmarks of having X projects be agile by this, you get a bonus. And when that fails and this is true in many formal change methods, they rely on coercion. Mm. Coercive is, power. Yeah, coercive power. If you don't do this, you will, you will experience some sanctions. Mm. You know, and it might, be, um, you know, it might be you won't get to have a good project, you won't be promoted, you may be fired not a good use of power in well, general. You know, what's interesting is that people are very familiar with, with those forms of power. Right. Right. They're right. familiar with that currency. Um, the downside of all of those three forms of power is that the best you can hope for is compliance. Mm. Right. Yeah. People will comply because their boss said so. People will comply because they want to get the bonus. People will comply to avoid punishment. But if you're working on net, uh, with referent power or network power, 
which is another sort of people-based power, um, you get buy-in. Right. You get people who are engaged. Yeah. You get yeah. people who are willing to work creatively to figure out the problems rather than just say, oh, well, you know, they told us to do this way and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's making us stupid, but they told us to do it, so we're going to do it. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's compliance. Compliance, yeah. I, I I've heard of situations where people on the team, let's say you'll have a senior person and then someone who's more junior, and just by them getting to know each other better, um, like for example, the junior might be able to like you know take apart, put back together a motorcycle. And that just, just if the senior engineer happened to learn about that, they go, wow, this person's amazing. Or they're junior yeah. in regard to, you know, the role, but clearly, you know, uh, respect gets raised and then suddenly there's a, a, a better chance for a better relationship. Um, I see that with just in general, being a change agent, right? How do I engage with my clients so they, trust me or have respect for me you know like you know you've you've written a bunch of books and i'm sure that helps to some extent you know being an author or flying somewhere far away and coming in from far afar you know yes the expert from 50 miles away <laughs> um I, I, what, what this makes me think of is a really, really beautiful story in an article called Slow Ideas by Atul Gawande. Mm -hmm. Have you come across that one? I haven't read that one. I do love oh, it. It's, it's, really, it's really lovely. And, yeah. and Atul Gawande is um, a physician by training, I believe, and yes. a, very, a very great writer. But the, he was writing um, about how change happened in um, rural maternity hospitals in India mm. and they tried a number of different approaches and then he, he tells a story about this um, sort of junior nurse who went to work at a, a very um, resource strapped rural hospital and by resources I mean money equipment you know physical plant I don't mean mm. people yeah. um, and and it describes the relationship she formed with the maternal nurse there who had much more experience. Mm. And in the end that he asks, and I'm paraphrasing here, well, why did you listen to this, this nurse who was much younger than you that, that came in and had all these things for you to do. And, and, and the older nurse said, she didn't come here to judge me. She wasn't here to criticize. She, she was my friend helping me to work better. Ah, wow. And it's yeah. such a beautiful story. There's actually so, a bunch of really interesting um, observations about the psychology of change and identity. Yeah. I, I, I loved his article. checklist manifesto and, yeah. uh, and his observation that, you know, no matter where you are in your, in your profession, um, get a coach. That, that blew my mind. Like he literally yeah. went back to one of his professors and had his professor observing him in the operating room to give him a few tips on how he could improve. I mean, he's that, you know, humble that you know, he's a world yeah. world renowned surgeon and yet he still has someone watching him doing a surgery and saying, you know, I noticed a couple of little things. And he said, wow, how that helped him have even fewer complications after surgery. Yeah. Um, but well, I, I do that all uh, informally with, with colleagues a lot. Right. So when I, when I co-teach with somebody or when I'm consulting with somebody, well, what did you observe? Yeah. To get that sort of input. Yeah. 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 
That's really neat. I remember him in one of the articles he talked about yeah. Itzhak Perlman. Itzhak Perlman um, has a coach. It's his wife. And they both met at Juilliard and uh, she decided to not go on to becoming a, you know, a touring musician and stuff, but she's his coach. And so she, she hops him all the time <laughs> with observations and things like that. So um, anyway. Well, that, that can be tricky. In, yeah. in an intimate relationship. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, but you're, yeah. yes. I mean, I, like there's there's like this spectrum between you don't know anybody at all and your intimate partners. Yeah. And sometimes this will work, but mostly it's, you know, you have to have some relationship and rapport. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you're not, you're not like some rando and mm -hmm. you're not an intimate partner. And it's, you know. Yeah. Great for them I, that it works. I mean, I know I, we, we used to have a, you know, we, we have a lot of people coaching together and coaching teams together. So two coaches to coaching on one team. One time we had a problem that the team kind of wanted us to get rid of one of the coaches, one of the two coaches. And I was like, what's, what's wrong? This guy's, this person's great. I mean, you know, I, they're like, well, you know, we come in after the weekend and the other coach kind of like is friendly and asks us how our weekend was and what we up, what were we up to? And the other one's just like, let's, let's get to work. And, uh, you know, it was, I don't know, perhaps one of those situations where like your story about the nurse, um, yeah. you know, there wasn't enough co collaboration or, or just yeah, co camaraderie, just maybe? Acknowledging the, each other's humanity. Yeah. And I have met people that hate that. Oh. Right? <laughs> they just want to get to work. They just want you to know, get to work. They don't, you know, but I, in my experience, that's the exception. Yeah. I mean, I, I have I have met people who genuinely are, are so private that they don't want to share what they did over the weekend. And, right. and frankly, sometimes depending on who's asking, I don't want to share either. Mm -hmm. Right. So so we, we all have different needs for um, for inclusion and for disclosure. Right. 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 So I think there has to be some sensitivity to that. Yeah. And it's a shame that you know it got to the point where we they wanted him to go away before anyone said anything about it, mm -hmm. or before he noticed maybe. Okay, so I have another question for you. Um, I was thinking that I was thinking about how how to know whether things are are heading in the right direction. Because I was thinking, like, let's say that you have change by attraction, mm -hmm. but people are attracted to something really superficial. They're like, oh, yeah, I want to get in on this, this giant superficial change that the company's doing. I'm attracted to this. I, I've been wanting to learn this stuff. And there's a form of referent power because, uh, sure. you know, it's like, hey, you know, this is, uh, I respect the people who are rolling this out and I want to be part of it. But the bottom line is it's one of these lipstick, you know, superficial things that isn't going to really make a difference to the organization, the division, whatever. How do people, you know, work through that how do they yeah. know first of all there's nothing wrong with lipstick i'm wearing lipstick <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> let's say superficial okay superficial um, non the stuff that um, doesn't lead to real change well so so that's interesting um because it brings up the m word of measurement and i think most people are um, you know they think of of measurement with capital m you know, yeah big measurement it's a program and we have outcome measures and you know okrs and all of this stuff right. and i think what you really need for 
uh, when you're making a change is you, you, you need to know what the outcome you're hoping for is. You need right. to have some sense of what eventually do we want to change, but you can't wait for those measures. They're too far out. Right. Right. Uh, it, it might take a year yes. or longer. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the things I do is I look at the factors that I'm trying to work on. Yes. What are all of these myriad little contributing factors? Mm-hmm. And I think about what is the smallest thing I could observe or detect? I don't use the word measure much, but what, what's the detect. smallest thing I could, could observe that mm-hmm. would tell me that this change is headed in the direction we anticipated it would if it were moving in a desirable direction for this overall change? I love that. So nice. I have a lot of little steering measures. Yes. Which also says, hmm, well, this isn't going where I thought it was going to go. And I thought these were going to be affected in this way, but they're affected in a different way. So then I can, then I can do some more problem solving and adjust things. Yeah. I, I, can, I can tweak things. I can do a little different experiment. I can pull some experiment back. Yes. Um, but I think that's, um, that's often missing in, in the changes I see. There's some, well, and some don't have any outcome measure because they don't, have a baseline they just want better yeah. um measured so, by who knows what but so you have to keep an eye on what is what is the the end result we're hoping to achieve mm-hmm. but then to steer it you need to have all of those little tiny measures do you sail i so have you, sailed you i have sailed, sailed. Yes, so i yes. thought you had that in your background so i used to sail too mm-hmm. and and, you know, you may set a course to some land over there, but you seldom go in a straight line. You know, yeah. you're paying attention to the wind, you're paying attention to the water, you're paying attention to, you know, if you're in the, the, the shadow of another boat, you know. Oh, yeah. Or it's a make, tugboat that's coming a million miles. Yeah. <laughs> so you make, you know, there's a wake. You have to make all of these little adjustments still heading that direction. Yeah, yeah. But if you just, you know, if you just went that way you know the wind shifts well it's a wonderful metaphor yeah that's great yeah i think uh no that's really helpful it's being being able to look at the little the little effects that are happening the little changes so um wonderful well um hey i really appreciate you coming on the show uh i'm really happy you invited me it's really been delightful to have this conversation with you oh great and i i just love this book so really check it out i think this is super important to anyone trying to work on change you know study this book it's it's worthy of study uh it's it's uh there's a lot of just well you've packed a lot of wisdom into a small volume which i appreciate you know you don't have to climb through 400 pages and uh it's hard making something short so well, speaking of study, I am working on an online course ah, great. to accompany the book. So it will be full of, of exercises that people can, can do. And, and where can they go to find out more about that? Well, I have, I have not actually um, announced it yet. So okay. you guys are the first to know. Oh, excellent. So it will be on my, it will be on my website eventually. Okay. I'm, hoping to have it, I'm hoping to have it up in June. Yeah, That's and my I, hope. And I didn't, I don't think I even properly introduced you, but you've, you're, you, you run Aster Derby Associates. Yes. You're the founder and CEO. You've been doing this for several decades. <laughs> and AsterDerby.com, I think, <laughs> yeah. is your URL, yes. right? Yes. Okay. I was very original in naming my company. <laughs> well, that's, that's, it's easy to find. So, um, yeah. well, thank you so much, Esther. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And uh, if you enjoyed the show, please share it with others, like it, and uh, subscribe to our channel. 
Thanks for watching. Keep up the good work.